Well, did any of you have a chance to pay attention to the content of that passage and also count up how many times Jesus and God are mentioned? Any, anyone want to take a shot at it? How many times did you count Jesus and God? Anyone? How many? 25? Anyone else? Any contradictory numbers? Let there be no division among you. We just read it. There's, I counted 39 a handful of times this week. Um, anyone else? No? It's hard to pay attention and count at the same time. So um, 39 times, and maybe 40, depending on, there's one kind of where you could count, it refers to God as him. You could count that, that would get you up to 40. But 39 times in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, God and Jesus Christ are mentioned. What do you think the point of the book of Corinthians is? Jesus, yes, the Sunday school answer and the right answer, the biblical answer. What do you think the focus of the church ought to be? Come on. Jesus, yes. It's Sunday morning, 9 a.m. This is the Sunday school hour, right? You chose the first hour. Jesus is the right answer. Jesus is the point of this book. Jesus is to be the focus of the church. You've heard that before, right? Yet it's so hard for us to keep that front and center. For us to keep Jesus front and center. The focus of the church in Corinth, this church that we're studying from 2,000 years ago through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church, their focus became so many things other than Jesus. This morning, as we continue looking at our passage here, we're going to look at the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. The last two weeks, we were in the first part of Corinthians chapter 1, and so if you missed us the last couple weeks, you can go back online and listen to those sermons, or you could just join us today, here on forward, and get the rest of the book. This morning, we're in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to see that the church in Corinth lost its focus on Jesus, and it, and it had kind of watered down their focus, and it had introduced into their focus these idols. Throughout the book, we're going to see many different idols that Paul addresses and reveals to the church. And in the second half of Corinth, he's dealing with the idol of wisdom and power. If you were here last week, you remember that kind of the middle section of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he dealt with leadership idolatry. So that middle section where he says, some say I follow Paul, some say I follow Apollo, some say I follow Cephas. There's this, this group in the church, these people that are creating factions around different pastors, around different leaders. And so Paul addressed that idol last week. And tied to it, this week is the idol of wisdom and power. And so that's where we're going this morning. Linda, thank you for reading us the entire chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. I wanted you to get the overview, keep in mind kind of the context of what we're looking at this morning. And as we go through this passage this morning, we're going to consider the culture of Corinth, the cross of Christ, and then the counterculture of the church. Here's one of the challenges that a pastor has every week that he stands up to preach. These passages are amazing. Every word of God proves true, and every word of God reveals something different about God and reveals different idols in the human heart. And so all of you sitting here today and all of you online, those of you online, thank you so much for joining us. We miss seeing your faces here, but we're so glad that you can join us online. And, and every word in here proves true, and every word in here is useful for our, for our growth in Jesus. But all of us come into this building or we tune in online this morning in different places in our life, right? Different challenges, different backgrounds, different histories, different points of wounding, different points of joy. And so different words and, and different um, nuances in the text come out differently. 
Now, scripture is like a diamond, right? One substance, but many different cuts. And depending on which angle you look at it from, which way the light is hitting it, you're going to get different reflection, different refraction of light. And so I can't possibly hit where all of you are at this morning, but I hope that as we look at this text and we consider kind of the culture of Corinth, the overall culture of Corinth, and then, and then consider the culture of America, St. Louis Park, the surrounding cities, 2022, we're going to see some similarities between these two cultures, even though we're 2,000 years apart. We're going to consider the cross of Jesus Christ and what that has to say to our, our, our never-changing cultural battles and issues. And then we're going to consider the counterculture of the church. What Paul instructed the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago, how he instructed them to live, and what that would look like and mean for us to live in the same way today. And so the culture of Corinth. Here's the, the big idea that you need to know from this passage today as we look at specifically verses 17 through 31. The culture of Corinth was, well, for one, I mean, the main point here that Paul's addressing is power and wisdom. It's because the, the Greeks, the Gentiles in Corinth, they idolized wisdom. And the Jews idolized power. And we pick this up even right away in verse 17. And it's kind of coming out of last week when there's leadership idolatry. People would, would, would rally behind different preachers, teachers, and leaders who would kind of scratch their idol itch. That's a phrase. Whatever they were drawn towards, they would find preachers and teachers and leaders who had the same draw. Right? If you're a person of prayer, you love leaders who focus on prayer. If you're a person of teaching, you love leaders who focus on teaching. If you're a person who cares about the, the poor and the outcast, you love leaders who tell us to focus on the poor and the outcast. If you're a person who loves administration, you love a leader who brings order and administration. That's just how we work. It's human. We all like to fall behind people who... And an idol is a good thing God wrong. So prayer is not bad. Caring for the poor isn't bad. Preaching teaching isn't bad, right? Obviously, these are good things. But it becomes an idol when it becomes an ultimate thing. And so people are lining up behind these teachers who have different nuances in their teaching, their preaching, and their leading, and they're saying, yes, that's what the church needs. The church needs more depth. I want to find the deep preacher. No, the church needs more justice, more social justice. I want to find the social justice church. The church needs more prayer. I want to find the prayer church, right? And so this is happening here in the church in Corinth. And the Greeks specifically are lining up behind teachers, preachers, and leaders who bring wisdom, intellect, rhetoric. We see this in verse 17. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That means proclaim the good news. To talk about what Jesus has done and proclaim salvation in the name of Jesus. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So there's these two idols here in the city of Corinth that this new church was tempted to give into and to follow because they had grown up in this culture. The cultural air that they breathed was that the Greeks, the Gentiles, idolized wisdom and the Jews idolized power. Corinth was a, was a mix of different cultures, different backgrounds, but two of the dominant cultures were the Gentiles, the Greeks, and, and the Jews. And then Rome ruled over Corinth. So Rome was about power and government and enforcing law and order in the Roman way of life. Greeks, they, they weren't Romans. They had been conquered by the Romans and they, and they valued wisdom, right? Intellect, rhetoric. I mean, if, if you think about the, the, the philosophers, Aristotle, right? There, there's this Greek, even if, if you think about like the, um, the Princess Bride, 
How many of you have seen The Princess Bride? Put your hand up nice and high. There's that scene where they're sitting there, um, Wesley and, forget the dude's name, and they're sitting there at the hill, and it's a battle of wits, right? It's like, if I put the iodine in this cup and pass it here, he's playing this Greek game of rhetoric and wisdom and intellect and trying to outsmart another. That was the Greek culture, the Gentile culture of Corinth. Their activity, what they would do for entertainment, there was, there was other things for entertainment. They had like a, a Olympic games, sporting events. But many people in the city of Corinth, they would go to like open-air amphitheaters to just listen to orators speak. It was pre-podcast, pre-TED Talks, they, but they loved learning, they loved hearing, they loved wisdom spoken, they loved rhetoric and, and orators who, who they, sought, they sought power, essentially it all has to do with power, right? it all comes back to power, they sought power through human enlightenment, through kind of the engaging the mind, the it really was like a secular pursuit of engaging the mind through human enlightenment. And that was the Greeks' main idol. The Jews' main idol was, was, was power. It was trying to push back against the Roman government and the Roman way of life and push for the Old Testament Jewish way of life, the Hebrew way of life, and having their freedoms to practice their Old Testament religion in the way that they believed God had called them to. They sought power through religious institution. So the Greeks sought power through wisdom and rhetoric, through the mind. The Jews sought power through religious institution, through religious practice, through religious freedom, through making sure that the government wouldn't take away their freedoms. They, they wanted power to practice their religion in their own way. And in the church, this new church, it's, it's only a couple years old. Remember, Paul had been in Corinth for a year and a half planting this church. He came into the city, as he tells us in verse 17, with simple words, not with eloquent words, because he doesn't want to give in to the idol of the Gentile believers. He doesn't want to sound too eloquent in his speech because he doesn't want the Greeks to start worshiping him. He wants to push them to Jesus. And he doesn't come in and set up shop that the church is the powerhouse of community and culture and the church, everything in this city has to run through the church. We are the influencers. No, it's a bottom-up bottom thing because he doesn't want to play into the idol of the Jews who wanted a top-down religious rule of order. Paul comes in to the city of Corinth. He proclaims Jesus, not with words of eloquent wisdom, to not give in to the Greek idol, and not with power, not to give in to the... Not, top-down power to give in to the Jewish idol. But the power was the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And let me ask you, church, is it, is it much different for us today, 2,000 years later? Can you think of the idol of wisdom in our culture, even in our churches? We have so much information Everything you could ever want to know or every opinion that you would ever want to find lives in your front right pocket. And with a quick click, you can, you can learn so much. And what a great gift. But also, it, it feeds into our idolatry. I want to know more. I want to know more. I want to know more. We live in this culture that idolizes power, right? And it's all over the place. Don't start pointing fingers at the other aisle or the other church or the other movement. or Power, this idol, is just insidious in the human heart. 
I love what Richard Foster says in, in a really helpful book called Money, Sex, and Power, which was written in 1985. So all of, all of you younger people who think this is new to the church, this is age old. We studied Ecclesiastes that said there's nothing new under the sun. These power dynamics in churches and people groups, there's nothing new under the sun. Richard Foster ties it back to the garden, to original sin. He says, consider Adam and Eve in the garden, given every good pleasure, every delight, everything necessary for a good life. Yet they wanted more. They grasped and grabbed to be like God, to know good and evil. When all they knew was good, right? Some people don't understand the, 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 the knowledge of the tree of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like, why was it bad that they ate from that? Because God wanted to protect them from evil. All they knew was good. Good, good, good. God didn't want them to experience evil. And they decided to eat from that tree that exposed them to evil. They wanted, they grasped. The sin of the garden was the sin of power. And it would put power and pride together. They wanted to be more, to have more, to know more. Put wisdom in there. And doesn't this fester within us? I'm sure some of you have been listening to one of, the, one of the most popular podcasts this last year about a church that grew really big and really large and had a, had a terrible fall. And it's, it's about power and money and sexuality. Many of you have been hurt in churches because of these dynamics of seeking wisdom, seeking wisdom, lining up behind teachers, wanting to know more, wanting to know more. The pride of certain churches that think they know more than other churches and they look down their nose at other churches or, or the, the pride of a church that grows really big and becomes really influential and, and they're exercising power on their own members in their own community, trying to, trying to overpower the culture of the world or overpower what they deem as bad and sinful and a threat against the church of Jesus Christ. There are things that are sinful and a threat against the church of Jesus Christ, but the church doesn't fight power with power. The church fights power with love. The church speaks truth to power, the truth of the gospel. And so there's nothing new. This is, this is where we continue with our text here. Paul is teaching us that the, the cross of Christ destroys idolatrous pursuits of wisdom and power. Hopefully, even as we consider the dynamics of wisdom and power in Corinth in the first century, you understand, you know, like, yes, I have this insatiable search for, for knowledge myself. I know more than I do. Maybe I should work on my obedience rather than learning new things. And, and yes, I'm tempted to want to take control or to, to be in the majority or to be a part of a movement that at least is fighting power with power. This is this human drive, this idolatry of the human heart. And again, wisdom and power are good things, but they're idols when they become ultimate things and when we search to gain wisdom and power in the way and the means of the world rather than by God. And so the cross, here's what Paul is teaching us. Look at verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He's, he's telling us an unpopular truth here. There's two types of people in the world. Those who are being saved through the person, the work, the resurrection of Jesus, the, the new birth given him to us through his spirit, and those who are perishing. Two types of people in the world. On all continents, all colors, all races, all cultures, all languages, two types of people in the world, those 
who are being saved by the power of God and those who are, who are headed towards destruction or death. He says those who are perishing. Two types of people. And he's saying that in this human pursuit and longing for wisdom and power to save ourselves by using our intellect or by flexing our muscle, the word of the cross comes into this and it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the person who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In verse 21, if you're not following along, pick it up in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, religious sign, power of of miraculous things through the religious institution and the religious leaders and powerful confirmations. The Greeks seek wisdom. They want more intellect, more knowledge, more rhetoric. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's what Paul is saying. The cross of Christ, it destroys our idolatrous pursuits of wisdom and power, but it's foolishness, is it not? In a world where the idols are human intellect and wisdom, how foolish does it sound to say that we believe in this poor Jewish kid who was born in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. Oh, and he was also man and God, 100% both. He was born to a virgin. How does that work? We don't quite know. Oh, and by the way, this is all because Adam and Eve ate from a fruit when a snake tempted them, a serpent, right? And then, you know, there's nations warring with nations, and God decided to save the world through this God-man baby child born in Nazareth, mom rode into a city on a donkey, he was a carpenter for a while, he did some good things, preached some things, and then he died on a cross. Like in Corinth, to the Greeks who sought wisdom, to the Greeks who, who loved rhetoric and philosophy and human intellect, this just seemed foolish. Does it not today? It's foolishness. And to the Jews who idolized power and they wanted to take down the Roman Empire and they they thought, you know, if our religion gets power, we can execute God's justice and God's good in the world. And so, therefore, we need to fight. We need to fight the man. We need to fight power with power. We We need to gain power ourselves so that we can execute God's justice and law on earth. And, 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 For Jesus to go to the cross and die, that's weakness. The king of Israel doesn't die on a Roman cross. In fact, that's the exact opposite of what we want. That's not power, that's us losing to the enemy, right? That's what's going on here in in this culture, in this context. And Paul here is teaching that the cross, it's foolishness to those seeking intellect and it's weakness to those seeking power. And so as you identify and notice the idol in your own heart of wisdom and power, the cross comes and it destroys those by by making this gospel proclamation foolish to human intellect and weakness 
to the desire for human power. The way of Jesus is philosophical foolishness and religious weakness. We just sang about it this morning in the old rugged cross. It says, on the old rugged cross where my dear Savior died, the emblem of suffering and shame, that's what the cross is. We Many of us wear it around our neck. We get it tattooed on our bodies. We have it on shirts. It's in our churches. And it was an emblem of suffering and shame. The Roman cross, it was a, it was a Roman execution tool. They used it to hang the most heinous of criminals in public, to kill these criminals in public, to, to exert their power over culture and over the cities. Hey, if, 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 you, if you break our law, you break the Roman law, you'll hang upon this cross too. Suffer. You'll hang here for hours, struggling until your last, very last breath. And shame, sinner. And this is the cross that Jesus was put upon. How foolish. How weak. The Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, to be crucified on a cross? That speaks of nothing but weakness and foolishness. But the way of Jesus is the way of humility and death. And humility and death is the pathway to exaltation for all of eternity. This passage tells us clearly that the cross of Jesus is true wisdom and power to those who believe. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal this to us, to make this true. This is, this is, this is where we're at, church. This is where we're unified, not around human intellect or the power of religious institution or political endeavor. We're united around the foolishness of the cross and the weakness of the cross, which becomes for us the wisdom of God and the power of God. Because you know what? The cross didn't keep Jesus dead. He overcame sin and death in the grave. He got up out of that tomb on the third day, overcoming death. Amen? And so we just need to keep this in mind, church, that the cross is what unifies us. The cross is what we look to. The cross is what we cling to. The cross is true wisdom and true power. Be careful of your own idolatrous impulses and then the culture and the world that we live in, how they feed our idols and we can give in to, to, to the cravings of our flesh, wanting to know more or to exert more power. The cross is our wisdom and our power. And so, as a response, the church of Jesus Christ is, is a counterculture. That's what Paul is getting at here in Corinthians. This entire book is addressing this group of people who is united around a man named Jesus who lived and died and rose again. It's made up of all these people from different backgrounds, various perspectives, and Paul is calling them throughout this book to, to identify their idols, to repent of their idols, and then to walk in unity with one another around Jesus. There to be a counterculture. When the city of Corinth creates factions around leaders, when the idols of Corinth, when the idols of the Greeks are, are wisdom, rhetoric, and human intellect, he's saying the church is a counterculture. We don't find pride in wisdom. We don't find pride in human intellect and rhetoric, and we don't create factions around people who can give us that idol. 
when the culture in Corinth is, is this insatiable hunger for power, he's saying that the counterculture of the church is that we don't, we don't rally around power, we don't fight for power, we don't exert power, we don't fight power with power, we speak truth to power, and the truth of the gospel is that we are willing to die and give up our rights and, and be made a spectacle the same way that Jesus was made a spectacle. The way of the church is a countercultural embrace of the cross, which is foolishness to the world and weakness, of, weakness to the world. And so three things that come out of this text, which are a counterculture for the church that I want us to just consider for a few minutes here as we close down. The first is to embrace the way of Jesus is true wisdom and power, right? Paul has told us the culture of the church, the temptation of the church, the idols of the church. He's, he's reminded us of what the cross is, what the cross does. And so as a response, this counterculture of the church is to embrace the way of Jesus is true wisdom and power. The church in Corinth, and I think 2,000 years later, the church in America needs to grow in doing simple and small tasks of obedience as we embrace the counterculture way of Jesus, Simple and small tasks of obedience. Remember how Jesus summarizes the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. What if we did that? Rather than giving in to the demand of, of the idol of wisdom and the demand of the idol of power, what if we just loved God and loved neighbor? That's simple almost seems foolish, yet you know there's something so pure and right about it. It seems weak. Do you really fight an enemy with love? Something so weak about it, yet so countercultural and right. The way of Jesus is humility. It's meekness. Meekness is power kept under control and used for another's good. It's listening rather than ranting. It's laying down our rights. It's loving our enemies. We live in this age of information, and the church has become obsessed with learning. Learning's a good thing. Please don't hear me say that you shouldn't learn, that you shouldn't read, that you shouldn't think, that you shouldn't study, that you shouldn't listen. You should. But be careful in that of the idolatry of wisdom. Always wanting to know more, always wanting to have more, always wanting to gain power by knowing more than somebody else. You don't need to know more, I'm convinced of it. But you do need to obey more. I think the church needs more obedience, more simple steps of obedience. I love the way that Eugene Peterson says this in the book, um, The Jesus Way, which I highly recommend to any of you reading. He says, we cannot skip the way of Jesus in our hurry to get to the truth of Jesus. The way of Jesus cannot be reduced to information or instruction. The Jesus way wedded with the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. We all want to live. If you're in the church, if you're desiring to be a Christian, if you are a Christian, that means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, that you want to grow in living your life in the same way that Jesus lived his life. Though, though we'll never fully attain it, that's why there's salvation through the blood and the body of Jesus, but we want to strive to live more and more like Jesus. And Eugene Peterson is saying, you can't skip the way of Jesus to get to the truth of Jesus. Many of our churches have focused so much on the truth of Jesus and teaching and teaching and teaching and doctrine and doctrine and doctrine and they've neglected the simple ways of Jesus. Saying, be careful. 
But it's not just about doing what Jesus did. We also, we also need to learn. We need truth. We need to grow. Like we grow through practice and through information. And so he's just saying these two things wedded together bring about the Jesus life. Like Paul here in Corinthians is saying, be careful about seeking wisdom. 2,000 years later, Eugene Peterson is, being, is saying, be, be careful about your, your insatiable need for more information and more instruction because you can neglect doing what you're supposed to do by trying to learn more things that you'll inevitably fail to do. So keep these things wedded together. Paul has just taught us that the cross and the community have built, built around the cross is true wisdom. Not the latest online sermon or the in-person sermon or the podcast or the book insight or the news radio or whatever it is that you get your stuff from. That's not true wisdom. There might be nuggets of wisdom in any of those things, but true wisdom is found in an embodied community centered around Jesus who is foolishness to the world but the wisdom of God and to the wisdom of those, to those of us who have tasted and seen it, right? And so get involved in a community the wisdom of God is for us to have real relationships with messy sinners, not curated, carefully curated content from online instructors. Jump into the community. We also live in this culture obsessed with power and influence, and we need to fight this by remembering Jesus' call for us to be meek and lowly. Paul just taught us that the message of the cross has power to break chains of division, chains of hatred, chains of injustice, to, to, to combat our insatiable desire for power. I love, again, Eugene Peterson says again in this book, related to power in the American church, he says, more often than not, I find my Christian brothers and sisters uncritically embracing the ways practiced by the high-profile men and women who lead large corporations, congregations, nations, and causes, people who show us how to make money, win wards, manage people, sell product, manipulate emotions, and who then write books or give lectures telling us how, that, how we can do what they are doing. I've been a pastor for 16 years. Can't tell you how true this is. Conference after conference of the successful people telling you how to do church. He goes on. He says, but, but these ways, more often than not, violate the ways of Jesus. North American Christians are conspicuous, conspicuous for going along with whatever the culture decides is charismatic, successful, or influential. Whatever gets things done, whatever can gather a crowd of followers, hardly noticing that these ways are at odds with the clearly marked way that Jesus walked and calls us to follow. And how easy it is for us to think, well... The more power we have, the more influence we can exert, and God has called us to influence the culture, influence the world for his good, and there's this, this, this scratching of the idle itch for more power, for more wisdom, for more influence, and, and do you remember what the cross is showing us? That Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, died on an emblem of suffering and shame. And our wisdom and our power is to proclaim that truth day in and day out, over and over again, in word and deed, as we call people into this life of flourishing in this upside-down kingdom that has a counterculture that does life differently. Yes, this spirit, this longing for power and worldly wisdom festers within us. 
and we gather together in homes and in small groups and at coffee shops and in this building to remind one another of our true identity, our new identity in Jesus, that we can embrace the foolishness and the weakness of the cross. This is where we find true wisdom and power. The, the second counterculture thing that I want to pull out from here is that we can, embrace, we can embrace our high position with a humble disposition. We can embrace our high position with a humble disposition. As we go through Corinthians, we're gonna, the book of Corinthians, we're going to see this over and over again. And we saw it especially two weeks ago when we looked at the beginning of the book. Remember that Paul addresses the church. Look at it with me in verse 2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father, to the sanctified saints. This is our nature. This is who we are. You and I have a high position. God the Father, the perfection, the holy other God who sent his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life, never sinning, never judging, never misstepping. They've actually, through the life of Jesus, through the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, you and I have what's called theologically his imputed righteousness. You and I have the righteousness of Christ. We are saints. Right? This is a high position. Look at, look at how Paul addresses this in verse 30 of chapter 1. He says, And because of him, because of Jesus, because of the cross, because of Jesus' willingness to embrace folly and foolishness in the eyes of the world, and because of Jesus' willingness to embrace weakness and meekness in the eyes of the world, because of him, you are in Christ. See that in verse 30? And because of him, because of Jesus, you are in Christ. This is the status and the standing for the Christian. You are in Christ. You are covered with the righteousness of Christ. Amazing? When the enemy lies to you, the accuser, you know the devil's called the accuser, not God, right? You're not good enough. You always fail. You keep sinning. You don't go to church enough. You don't read your Bible enough. You don't pray enough. You don't listen to the right music. You don't do religion in the right way. When the world accuses you, yeah, you're a hypocrite. You're judgmental just like the rest of us. You're whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah, probably true because I still struggle with my flesh and my sin. But in the eyes of God, my standing, my position is righteous, sanctified, holy. I'm in Christ. Who Look at verse 30. Keep looking at it with me. Because of him, because of God, because of Jesus, you are in Christ who became to us the wisdom of God. So we're in Christ. So the wisdom of God is in us. The righteousness and the sanctification and the redemption, that's who you are. You are in Christ. You have his righteousness. You have his sanctification. That means you've been made holy. You've been made right. He's working out your salvation, and you've been redeemed. You can embrace this high position, church family. This is, this is the counterculture of the church, is that we don't have to allow, we shouldn't allow the lies of the enemy, the accuser, to beat us down. And we shouldn't allow culture or others to define us. We are defined by Jesus Christ as those who are in Christ, those who are sanctified, those who are redeemed, those who are righteous, those who are holy. Amen? And so that's the position that we embrace. But church, we don't do this in a boastful way in ourselves. We, we do this with a humble disposition. Look at verses 26 through 29 when he flows into reminding us of our high position in Christ. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. If you think you're wise, if you think you have human intellect, you're always going to struggle with the gospel because it's foolishness compared to human wisdom. If you think you have power because of whatever foolish, dumb reason you think you have power, because you're part of some political party or some church movement or some theological tribe or some growing company or whatever, right? Like, we're just dumb. We're so easily swayed to bow down to our idols and to worship power. False power, human power. And he's saying, if you, if you think you're powerful... You're going to struggle with the gospel. Many of you, most followers of Jesus, they come from humble means. They, they know they don't have human intellect and wisdom. I can't keep up with the Greek philosophers. They know they don't have the power of the Roman government. They know they don't have power of the religious Jewish system. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. And so we embrace this high position that we're in Christ with a humble disposition because you know what? You're not much other than the fact that you're created in the image of God and so you have worth and dignity and value through his eyes. But, but in the eyes of the world and compared to other people in the world, you're not much. Stop thinking you're much. You're low and you can embrace this. We embrace our high position with a humble disposition which leads to the last countercultural point in results in us boasting in the Lord, which Paul closes out this chapter by saying, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord you don't boast in your human intellect and wisdom and rhetoric. You don't boast in your power in the, in, in, in the right positions of your church or your politics or your, like, the power that you're exerting on the world and the influence that you have on the world. You're not boasting in your noble birth, who you belong to, your family lineage, your, your great history. You're boasting in Jesus and Jesus and Jesus because your high status comes from him and him alone, Right? He quotes Jeremiah, 29, or Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. I want to close down by looking at that passage together. It's on page 638 in the Pew Bible. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Paul quotes the Old Testament prophet. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, your God. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. One of the things that we do weekly here at Park Community Church is to take communion. This is a way that we boast in the Lord. We are here to gather around a man who died on the cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And we boast weekly by taking communion to remind ourselves and one another that, that we know God, as it says here in Jeremiah. We experience his love, his justice, and his righteousness, as it says here in Jeremiah, through his son, Jesus the image of the invisible God. He is the one that we boast in, not our flesh, not our religious duty, not our upbringing, not our theological positions, not our political opinions, 
None of that. We boast in Jesus. And to boast in Jesus means to embrace the way of foolishness and weakness for the glory of God, the good of the world, and the advancement of the gospel. Amen? So I'm going to invite you, when you feel led and ready, just sit and reflect for a few minutes. Pray and ask God to reveal to you your idols as they relate to wisdom and power. And there's no shame in it. Jesus walked our shame up the hill, put it on the cross. He hung there being shamed in public. So you don't need to feel shame about your idols of wisdom and power. Just say, Jesus, thank you for hanging there and experiencing the shame that was rightfully mine and you took it upon your shoulders and so now I walk guiltless without shame. Thank you, Jesus. And then take communion when you feel led and ready because you've been made new. Let me pray. And then as you feel led and ready, if you are a follower of Jesus, the elements are there in the pew for you to take when you feel ready. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. I pray that you would crush our idols of wisdom and power now and then continue to do it because they continue to rear their ugly heads. But Lord, in you we've been made new. In you we don't need to bow to the idol. In you we have true abiding wisdom and eternal power. So I pray that we would even feel the effects of that this morning as we take communion and respond in song. In your name we pray, amen.